It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Stuart Varney. I'm Harris Faulkner. I'm Brian Kilmeade, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, April 8th, 2022. I'm Chris Foster. The midterm election is seven months from today. Most people think the country is on the wrong track and that the economy is weak. <laughs> so, you know, that's a pretty toxic brew here that can make for a tornado against the Democrats unless something changes. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Russia's war in Ukraine has European countries on alert as more talk of their own military defense and even joining NATO. But what will that mean for us and our future engagement on the continent? You now have the effect of traditionally neutral countries like Finland and Sweden saying, we don't want to be alone anymore. (laughs) Let's join NATO. They're not 100% there yet, but the train is leaving the station. And I'm Ben Domenech. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. President Biden's approval rating in most polls in the high 30s, low 40s, not what Democrats want to see trying to keep control of Congress in the midterm elections. The president says his policies are working. It's been a long, tough stretch, but Americans are back to work. Our economy has gone from being on the mend to being on the move. But inflation has more than eaten into those gains for most Americans. And the president's popularity on the economy, for example, is at 35 percent in the latest Harris poll, down from 61 percent when he took office. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy tells Fox's Sean Hannity Republicans will show why they should be in the majority. We're going to make America stronger again around the world. This is just the start. We'll have this rolled out to the American public. You'll see our policies. The opposition party usually picks up seats in midterm elections. When you look at the polling data now, unless something is done that significantly reverses what we're seeing, you're looking at a wave election. Mark Penn's a former advisor and campaign strategist for Bill and Hillary Clinton. He's founder and CEO of the marketing and communications company Stagwell, Inc., and chairman of the Harris Poll. And the thing that you know about wave elections is you do all these calculations and the wave washes you out. It tends to be bigger than you think it's going to be because 20, 30 percent of people showing up for the polls, they don't care who the candidate is. They're there to express anger about the ins and they want them out. Um, Generic horse race right now favoring Republicans, 53 percent to 47 percent. How does that translate this year into seats flipping? Have you done that math? Um, I haven't done that math because that question, you know, has never really been a totally accurate question. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when it would show three or four points for the Democrats, it would come out uh, about about equally. If it really was a six point spread in favor of the Republicans, uh, that, that really could be kind of a 50 seat you know, swing. I mean, a lot of people don't think that there's there's a 50 seat swing because they think that gerrymandering has made so many of the districts harder to reach and outside of swing. But uh, but but something like a six point edge would really be a wipeout of the of the Democrats. A lot of people voted for Democrats and voted for President Biden last time because they didn't like Donald Trump anymore. Donald Trump is now no longer on the ballot. Um, Young Democrats may be more likely, I assume, to stay home. Not 50 percent of Democrats, I mean, Republicans approve of their party, even fewer Democrats approve of their party. Does that suggest low turnout? 
Uh, we've really seen historically high turnouts now that voting has become fundamentally easier and that there's so many mail ballots floating around. And we've seen politics become, uh, you know, if, you, if I always used to say there's, you know, there's basically there's sports and there's entertainment and politics and politics has taken on kind of a nature in our culture that's, I think, so much stronger and higher, both in terms of voting and turnout. So I, 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 I expect turnout to be lower than the presidential. But again, I think for a midterm, it's going to be a higher turnout primary. More people are just involved in politics and the political system. And there's going to be a lot of money spent by Democrats and Republicans here, you know, in the end game. Uh, important issue to, issues to voters this time, the, uh, the kitchen table stuff, as we call it, inflation, economy, jobs, immigration, COVID, health care, and none of it, President Biden is above water as far as approval goes. Well, I mean, that is the that's the that's the problem, right? The problem is that it's quite clear that, that the, the president is uh, disfavored, you know, by a majority of the American public on the way he is carrying out the job of the economy. The foreign affairs, immigration, crime, even the even the virus, where he had the seventy percent ratings, uh, is below fifty. So on issue after issue, right, the president and the Democratic administration are below fifty, and most people think the country is on the wrong track and that the economy is weak. So, you know, that's a pretty toxic brew here that can make for a tornado against the Democrats unless something changes. Yeah. Um, Former President Obama said the other day that, look, it's not a lost cause. Democrats have accomplished more than they're getting across and they're just doing a bad job of selling stuff. But in the end, isn't that, you know, perception's reality? Uh, well, per- perception is reality in politics, but also reality is reality. <laughs> hey, their, their inflation is high. Uh, I, th- I think that the problem of the administration is not of messaging, right? The, the Russians did invade, so deterrence didn't work. Inflation is the highest in 40 years. The crossings in the border are in the in the millions, right? Crime is up in virtually every major city. So I strongly disagree with that because believing that it's just a messaging is what allows people to just punt and say, oh, don't worry, we'll have better messaging, we'll have money, we'll get out our message, don't change policy. No, policy here is not working. I know it's not fair to blame, I don't know, somebody running for Congress in whatever state. They have nothing to do with, with that, what's happening at the border. They have nothing to do with inflation. They have nothing to do with gas prices, but them's the breaks, right? I mean, what happens, especially in these midterm elections, is that whoever's in power is going to drag down members of their party down the ticket. Well, in midterm elections, a lot of low information voters, as you point out, classically didn't vote at all. So that uh, a higher proportion of the voters would be voters who really understood the candidates, knew them, had some sense of how their representative was doing in their state or district, and the elections would be more localized. Given the communication system we have, the higher uh, ability and emphasis on stimulating more people to, to turn out, a greater percentage of the voters are these voters who don't care who the candidates are and are there to express, hey, I'm a Democrat, I want to strengthen the Democratic Party, or no, I'm mad at the Democrats, or I'm a Republican now. And and they don't care, and they don't follow the, the race, and they don't follow all the, the details of who's a better representative. And that is the, the key component of a wave election that, that uh, an individual a candidate or representative who's done a good job with the district gets so frustrated by. 
or about two years and seven months away from the next presidential election um, in a horse race. Democrats say that, you know, Joe Biden's the favorite, but only a third, 34 percent say that they that they support him. That seems remarkably low. Well, that is an unprecedentedly low polling figure for a sitting president when I ask a Democratic primary. I've never seen it like that. That means there's no real expectation among Democrats that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee going forward. They either think he hasn't done a good enough job or he's too old, that they really see him as a, as a one-term president. And we'd be really shocked if he didn't sometime in the next year, he's not gonna wanna make himself a lame duck prematurely, uh, pull out of the next presidential race, uh, unless there's an unbelievable turnaround here in his administration, the likes of which we have not seen since I worked with President Clinton, who came out of the midterms uh, and really you know, battled his way to a second term. Yeah. Speaking of former President Clinton, if President Biden steps down, there's no real clear front runner. Um, Kamala Harris doesn't have a ton of support nationally. Um, I, Hillary Clinton's there too, but I, you know, I, I don't know what, what's going to happen with her. I doubt she would run again, right? And so, is there is there an opportunity for somebody like a Bill Clinton to bubble up out of nowhere, out of one of the states, maybe some sort of moderate Democrat, and uh, and climb ahead of the pack? Well, Bill Clinton himself, we know, can't do that. But uh, there is something of a power vacuum. You know, again, when Hillary started out second time, she was at 45 percent or uh, even the first time when Al Gore uh, was vice president, he was at 65 percent of the Democratic electorate. To have someone who's sitting vice president only at 23 is weak. On a countervailing basis, though, the history is Hubert Humphrey, Al Gore, you name it, uh, Walter Mondale, vice presidents get the nomination, right? And they, part of the reason is post the midterms, she'll probably control the party machinery. Uh, and if she controls all the machinery and, and she might even wind up president here, you never know what's gonna happen with all this Hunter Biden stuff floating around. And <clears throat> and so, so I, you know, if I were like betting, I think she'll wind up the Democratic nominee one way or the other. That's my guess. I think she has a pretty high probability. And I don't see anyone right now, you know, being able to put a strong challenge, even if Hillary Clinton is obviously sniffing around the edges. Well, and then we got to look at the other uh, co-star of the last presidential election. Donald Trump is hinting he's going to run again. I guess nobody really, really knows. He said um, that he, I don't know if it was a shot across the bow, but he said, geez, I can't, I can't imagine that uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis would run, want to run against me. I don't see that Mike Pence would run against me or Mike Pompeo would run against me. Um, he's the clear favorite, right? Uh, yes, he's, he's definitely the clear favorite. He has a strong vote in the Republican primary. But hey, George Bush, I'm sorry, Jeb Bush was the strong favorite when Donald Trump got in. So we're but, you know, people who are the challengers become the incumbents and have all this baggage with them that's really quite different from the time that they were the surprise challenger. So could Donald Trump get in as the front runner? Absolutely. Could there be a surprise challenger or even a not so surprise challenger? Absolutely. Could people be looking to go forward rather than back? I wouldn't count his renomination as any kind of certainty uh, in, in this environment. This isn't polled, but I was talking to Tom Bevan from Real Clear, Real Clear Politics not long ago. He said that his gut is that we're going to get a whole new cast of characters, that it's not going to be Trump and it's not going to be Biden, that it's going to be a whole new thing that, that people will want to look forward uh, in 2024. 
I, I think if the American voter wound up with Trump versus Clinton again, they would get really frustrated about what happened. And I think you'd see a third candidate evolve. I think unless these parties evolve to a new set of candidates, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Joe Manchin or others run as an independent candidacy here and possibly even win. Mark Penn, CEO of Stagwell, Inc., Harris Poll Chairman. Mark, good to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is Ben Dominich with your Fox News commentary coming up. Our military leadership is warning of a protracted Russian war in Ukraine that could last for years. And European countries, some more than others, are highly aware of their proximity to Russia, as more of them are now talking about joining NATO. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said after meeting with NATO counterparts in Brussels Thursday. A hallmark of everything that we've been doing in the months leading up to Russia's aggression against Ukraine and in the time since has been our extraordinary collaboration, coordination, consultation. Adding that for the first time ever, foreign ministers from Indo-Pacific allies, Australia, Japan and Korea participated in a NATO ministers meeting and representatives from Georgia, Finland, Sweden and Ukraine took part as well. Earlier this week, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told the House Armed Services Committee that what future help looks like for our NATO allies, even non-NATO allies, may shift a lot. NATO is going through a process right now to really kind of uh, assess how the, we expect that the, the uh, security architecture in the region uh, is going to change for the foreseeable future, or has changed for the foreseeable future. Uh, with that in mind, then you know we'll look to work with, to, with NATO to, if NATO deems that it's appropriate to uh, to change its footprint. Uh, then uh, certainly we'll be a part of that. Russia was suspended from the U.N. Human Rights Council Thursday with 93 votes, but 24 countries voted against the suspension and 58 countries abstained. The U.N. ambassador to China, which voted against the suspension, said such a hasty move, which forces countries to choose sides, will aggravate the division among member states and intensify the confrontation between the parties concerned. It is like adding fuel to the fire, he said. It can appear rather binary. Kurt Volker is former U.S. ambassador to NATO and distinguished fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Putin has gone all out and made himself an international pariah. Uh, He has launched an unprovoked aggression against a sovereign neighboring state. He has engaged in indiscriminate attacks against uh, civilians and population centers. He has launched 10 million people out of their homes, three to four million of them in neighboring countries, six million or so displaced within Ukraine. So he has gone all out in making himself and making Russia a global pariah. This has rallied the world around Ukraine and its cause. Ukraine is a sovereign state. Its people are striving to build a modern country. They are suffering unspeakable uh, brutality. And so everyone is trying to help them. So, yes, in that sense, um, it it has become a little black and white in a moral sense. The second thing I would say about this, though, is that Already, I think we can say that Russia has lost and that Ukraine ultimately will win. And the question now is how this all plays out. Um, Russia cannot take over Ukraine. It cannot take Ukrainian territory and hold it. The Ukrainians have put up fierce resistance. They have 
killed thousands of, people, of Russian soldiers. Estimates are as much as a third of Russia's uh, combat capability has been destroyed now in this war. And then on top of this, you have the economic sanctions that the U.S. and the EU have imposed. So Russia is now effectively driving itself into the ground as a result of this war. And then uh, the, the rest of the world is really stepping up to help Ukraine. You just said that Vladimir Putin has made Russia and himself a pariah, that Russia has lost. We've heard that before. But when Russia was suspended from the Human Rights Council Thursday, there were still 24 votes against the suspension and 58 abstentions. So Russia is not without its supporters. And those abstentions are certainly you know, noteworthy. Countries like yeah. Brazil and India. Do Russian mm -hmm. friends or those abstainers matter and how much? I don't think it matters a lot to be honest. First off, I think we have to look at dependencies. Many countries have gotten themselves into a position of dependence on Russia. Germany, of course, recently, and, the, and now they're struggling to get out of that and struggling to figure out how to shut off Russian gas. Uh, India, likewise, they, they got off Iranian uh, oil and gas, and now they're addicted to Russian oil and gas. But that doesn't mean that India is siding with Russia in the war, they just want to stay out of it. And I think we have to look at this through a couple of lenses at the same time. As we just said, there is kind of a black and white, right and wrong moral case here. Russia being an aggressor, Russia killing civilians. Nobody's attacking Russia. No one's killing Russian civilians. And that makes this a very clear moral case. That's on the one side. On the other side, though, countries are looking at how does this end? What happens afterwards? How do we manage our own interests? And the West, which is involved in, in this deeply, it's a, Ukraine is a European country, and they are supporting Ukraine's right to sovereignty, independence, and, and protecting itself. But you know, if you're in Africa, or if you're in India, or if you're in you know, South America, you're looking at this as very far away, very unfortunate. We sympathize with Ukrainians, but we don't really want to get dragged into this so, again, that doesn't mean sympathy with Russia. That just means these countries are, are calculating their own interest and in, in staying quiet. As you noted, Secretary of State Blinken um, said there's a, a growing coalition of countries with, with Ukraine and against Russia. We know Finland, even Sweden, are expressing mm -hmm. more support for joining NATO themselves, although Sweden, apparently, based on polling, isn't over that 50 percent mark. What might happen with NATO and Europe, you know, what might things look like in a year, maybe five years, especially if our military leadership is right and this war could last for years? Yeah. So unfortunately, our military leadership has been wrong at most points in this crisis, uh, calculating that Russia would roll over Kiev within three days, that the Ukrainians would not mount as effective defense, that they can't integrate Western arms. All of this wrong. And I think they're wrong on the length of the war as well. This is not going to be years. What we're looking at is weeks to months where Russia has had a significant blow to its armed forces. It is struggling to regroup. And the more help we can give to Ukraine right now when they have momentum, the more this will disrupt Russia's ability to regroup and retake territory. Ultimately, I don't believe that Russia can withstand a military defeat and an economic collapse at the same time. The outlines of this are clear. Russia emerges from this weakened economically, politically, and militarily. Ukraine survives as a sovereign and independent European state. Uh, 
And the West is now clearly on Ukraine's side, uh, talking about EU membership, providing massive reconstruction funds to rebuild the country. So this fundamentally transforms the map from what we were looking at just three months ago. Yeah. Talk to me more broadly, though, about Europe and NATO, our our alliances. I mean, Mm -hmm. we're talking now about permanent bases in Eastern Europe. Um, You know, that's been a subject of conversation over the past couple of weeks before House Armed Services Committee meetings. Um, What do you envision? I mean, let's say this does only last, uh, you know, weeks or months. Would it still dramatically change how NATO functions, how Europe functions? Yes, I think so. So let's look at NATO. NATO has done a good job in affirming the Article 5 security guarantee for all members and backing that up with deployment of forces to Central and East European member states to demonstrate to Russia that if there is an attack on any of them, there will be a military response. That's very good. I think we have to be pleased with how NATO has handled this. A lot of unity, a lot of coming together. Second, you you now have the effect, as you indicated, of traditionally neutral countries like Finland and Sweden saying, we don't want to be alone anymore. (laughs) Let's join NATO. They're not 100% there yet, but the train is leaving the station. Um, Then you have the European Union. Three months ago, I was in Brussels, and everyone talked about Ukraine as a challenge. I was there last week, and everyone talked about Ukraine as a European country that we have to help. So the mentality has shifted Mm -hmm. fundamentally in Ukraine's favor. They see Ukraine ultimately as a part of Europe. So then when you talk about the future of Ukraine, you're looking at a European country, an independent sovereign state, uh, a future member of the EU, and gaining security guarantees from states in Europe, if not from NATO itself, that's still to be determined. Uh, it changes the landscape completely. Uh, none of, No more of this, well, we have to work with Russia. Uh, Russia is now left out as a pariah Mm. state until Putin is gone and until their forces are out of Ukraine. Our our military leadership said this week that Putin was undeterrable, that he could have only been deterred with, like, essentially boots on the ground. Um, But that was a decision, obviously, that we decided against. So then this was never really going to be stopped, was it? Yeah. So this is what in Washington we call a... Uh, Washington Monument argument, where you can't ever cut the budget because then there would be no funds to maintain the Washington Monument. And so, well, (laughs) we could maintain the Washington Monument and decide to not spend money on something else. And so this is that kind of argument where anything we did to deter Vladimir Putin would mean boots on the ground, U.S. military engagement, World War III, therefore you can't do it. And I don't buy that at all. I think there are many things that we could have done earlier and more decisively that would have indicated to Vladimir Putin that he would get into exactly the scenario that he's in now, that there would be decisive military support for Ukraine. There would be devastating sanctions. We could have given him very clear and stern warnings that we will engage, we will support Ukraine. We didn't do any of those things. And I accept the judgment of our political leadership that we didn't want to have U.S. forces directly engage with Russian forces. But there are so many things below that threshold that we could have done that could have made a difference. 
Finally, there has been a lot of talk about China and Taiwan vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine um, and what lessons can be applied from that as we prepare for Xi Jinping to actually go after Taiwan. I know Secretary Austin said this week we can't really compare Ukraine and Taiwan, but some members of Congress are expressing real concern, like, do we need to arm Taiwan in yeah. a certain way? With Ukraine, we've been laser focused, you know, on giving defensive, not offensive weapons. But what could we do to deter China from Taiwan? And why, why wouldn't the results of invading Ukraine be a deterrent? Like, China doesn't want similar economic sanctions. China doesn't want to deal with similar right. punishments. Right. The best thing we can do to deter China on engaging military against Taiwan is to make sure that Ukraine succeeds. If Russia, a much bigger military power with nuclear weapons and with superior, you know, finances and intelligence and so forth, can attack a country like Ukraine, which is weaker than Taiwan, and Ukraine wins, what better signal is there to China that Taiwan's not going to be so easy? And moreover, Taiwan will fight as well. The West will help Taiwan. We should make that clear, and we should take steps now to demonstrate that, as we could have done with Ukraine. And yes, Ukraine is being destroyed, but at the end of that, there will be a massive support to rebuild Ukraine. None of this is what China wants to see if it's thinking about an easy win in Taiwan. Kerr Volker, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for the time. News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. The nation's oldest active park ranger is hanging up her smoky hat at the age of 100. Betty Reed Soskin retired after more than 15 years at the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront National Historical Park in Richmond, California, according to the National Park Service. She led tours at the park and museum honoring the women who worked in factories during wartime and shared her own experience as a black woman during the conflict. She worked for the U.S. Air Force in 1942, but quit after learning that, quote, she was employed only because her superiors believed she was white, according to a Park Service biography. She won a temporary Park Service position at the age of 84 and became a permanent Park Service employee in 2011. She celebrated her 100th birthday last September. Soskin was born Betty Charbonnet in Detroit in 1921, but recalled surviving the devastating Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 while living with her Creole family in New Orleans. The biography goes on to say that her family then moved to Oakland, California, and Soskin remained in the San Francisco Bay Area. In 1945, she and her first husband founded one of the first black-owned record stores in the area. She was also a civil rights activist and took part in meetings to develop a general management plan for the Homefront Park. She's received several honors, including being named California Woman of the Year in 1995. In 2015, she received a presidential coin from President Obama 
after she lit the national Christmas tree at the White House. Soskin was also honored with entry into the congressional record. Glamour magazine named her Woman of the Year in 2018. And in honor of her 100th birthday in September of 2021, a middle school in the Bay Area was renamed in her honor. She said in a statement, giving shape to a new national park has been exciting and fulfilling. It has proven to bring meaning to my final years. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. What's on your mind? According to conventional wisdom, America's modern history regarding foreign policy and national security has gone through periods of significant upheaval. We've been a nation that desired retreat from the world stage in the wake of Vietnam, that engaged the power of market forces to try to reform communist China in the post-Cold War era, and was bent on wars with utopian visions of recreating the Middle East in our democratic image after 9-11. But from another, more rational perspective, America's foreign policy has been, through all this time, remarkably consistent, a Jacksonian bent toward our security interests with the will and capability to reach out to destroy our enemies at any time and against wars of conquest or goals that seem out of touch with reality. It was this attitude of permanent Jacksonianism that Donald Trump tapped into as a candidate for the presidency. He ran not against all wars, but against dumb wars, not as a dove, but as someone who wanted the ability to strike back against America's enemies with the greatest possible might. He stressed the need for other nations to live up to their obligations via NATO and other security commitments. In his frame, America was done fighting the battles of others for them on the backs of American taxpayers. But if you proved you were willing to fight for yourselves, you would receive the tools to do so. And to be backed by the Americans meant you would be backed to the fullest. So it should surprise no one that within short order, after Vladimir Putin's advance westward, the former president began sounding increasingly hawkish notes in favor of the Ukrainian forces who put up a courageous fight against the invaders. Trump called for tougher sanctions, heavier weapons, and more advanced fighters to be delivered on Ukraine's behalf. A reminder that the media concocted fiction about his relationship with Russia ignored so much of his actual policy instincts. And the Republican Party stands with him with overwhelming numbers suggesting we ought to do more to help the Ukrainians and overwhelming majority support from Republicans for President Zelensky. Republicans are where the former president is, and he is with them. All this serves to make a recent letter from non-interventionists organized under the auspices of Sorab Amari's new publication, Compact, extremely odd as a major foray for the new publication into the realm of foreign policy. The signers, whose ranks include integralist thinkers, leftists, and a cross-section of others, pledged their names to a letter that seems to be operating in a fantasy land. The letter warns repeatedly against escalation, apparently defined as a path toward World War III. But despite the intemperate ramblings of the current occupant of the Oval Office, there is no support whatsoever in the Congress or the country for a war of regime change in Russia. There is not even any significant support for a no-fly zone, except perhaps as part of a negotiated peace. And the only way such a negotiation for peace can take place is if Russia is truly on its heels, a circumstance that can only be achieved if the Ukrainians have the heavy weapons and anti-air capability they have been asking for in the past month, something the signers of the letter apparently view as an escalatory act in itself. Is it the belief of these signatories that the world and Ukraine would be better off if the Ukrainians would just lose faster? There is currently a large discussion about the future of a conservative's understanding of what it means to adopt an America first foreign policy. As with so many slogans, 
This one is ripe for interpretation and reinterpretation. But one thing an America first policy cannot be and will not be is something at odds with the overwhelming interests of the American people in supporting our friends, opposing our adversaries and maintaining America's stature in the world. The American people have very clearly picked a side in this conflict, casting aside any past illusions of a productive relationship with Vladimir Putin, a view shared by our allies in the West and beyond. An open letter based on such fantastical assumptions about the nature of the current conflict is unlikely to change the minds that matter, nor should it. I'm Ben Dominich. This article was published at National Review, which you can find at nationalreview.com. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Baer podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Baer favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.